Well, welcome to another This Week in Government Enforcement. Jerome Thomas, as always, joined by my partner and co-host, Tom Firestone. We got a special guest this week, our partner, Amy Greer. Um, no hockey talk this week, guys. We're talking about a, uh, uh, a recent initiative by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau um, issuing, uh, well, under an order, but really, you know, issuing requests to um, tech companies, both U.S. and multinational, relating to their use of big data, consumer big data. We'll get more into it with Amy, but want to give you a quick heads up on what the main topic was going to be. Tom is then going to um, uh, bring us home and talk about uh, comments um, by the Department of Justice, uh, representative of the Department of Justice over the past week or two relating to um, white collar enforcement. And then I'll take us home. And from there, uh, we will wrap it up and uh, call it a show. But I guess for starters, Amy, um, why don't you tell me what's going on here? Because I, I think we all knew this was going to come, right? So at the end of October, uh, the U.S. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau said that it was asking for information from major U.S. and non-U.S. tech companies and how they gather and use consumer payment data. Um, you know, presumably, it, it's a part of the, the agency's um, broad jurisdictional mandate to protect consumers um, and, you know, in whatever that would mean, um, but also from anti-competitive behavior, which ostensibly is a part of the CFPB's, but also um, the FTC's mandate as well. So why don't you maybe start us out and tell us what's going on here, right? I think a lot of people have questions. How does the CFPB have jurisdiction here? What do we really think they're getting at? And then once you get into it, maybe we can start a conversation going back and forth. Sure. So, you know, I think that this comes down to the fact that regulators abhor a vacuum, especially when it you know, when it comes down to consumers. And, you know, I think that the jurisdiction is all in the name, you know, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Pretty much every web-based company has a payments-related component, either for purchasing within an app, for buying products or services, and then there are the actual payment systems, fintech firms, that market their services to consumers. You know, those that permit consumers to pay one another, you know, like if you're splitting the cost of dinner, uh, or those that permit consumers to pay for products or services over time. And that doesn't even include, you know, like the credit card companies. I mean, those are essentially payment systems, uh, tech firms now uh, as well. I mean, everyone uses their phone now to pay or lots of people do. Uh, and so, you know, these are just examples. You can think of many, many more technology-based payment uh, apparatuses that are out there. And again, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And so, you know, these requests, I think, are really the method of getting to a place where other than state attorneys general and um, uh, the state apparatus for consumer protection, this is the place where, on a federal level, the analysis of whether consumers' uh, rights are being protected on a financial basis, that is the overlay here of this, of this request. And it's an enormously broad request. I mean, the order or request, it's 17 pages long. 
And so it is not insignificant in terms of what it is that um, CFPB is seeking. Yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about that, right? I mean, my understanding, I've, I've taken a look at the, <clears throat> the order or the request, right? It, it's called an order under the, the regulatory regime, but I think to the three of us, we would consider it to be requests. And so the, these requests, um, they're, they're very broad in nature, but, but one of them really caught my eye, Amy, um, and it's one that I see all the time. Um, it's questions about how tech companies that have payment systems, um, subsidiaries or operations, harvest the data of their overall client base, right? So a great idea here would be how somehow on my Facebook page, I am getting information on, that would reflect what my wife or children are, are searching up on the Google account through, um, you know, in order to buy something through, you know, whatever vendor it is, right? And the, the interplay, and again, I'm using something from my personal experience that popped up as I was looking at my social media account last night. Why am I seeing these banner ads pop up on my, uh, on my Facebook page, right? Um, but, but it's this question of how organizations monetize the information that they get um, in one area of their business, in other areas of their business, but also how are they monetizing the information that they get on various different payment streams in the actual payment, um, in, the, in the payment systems business. So I think there are a lot of different angles that the CFPB is going at here. Um, do we have any sense about whether this is really something more focused on protecting consumer information, right? My, my, my financial data, my, 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 my CVV, my, my uh, uh, account number, or is this something that, that we're getting a hunch is, is aimed more at the overall trying to look into how the tech companies are potentially encroaching more and more into the day-to-day -day lives of people and using their own information to further suggest um, additional purchases, right? The gamification of the financial industry, right? I know that's something that's near and dear to both of our hearts, Amy. It's it's it sort of is that they're 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 kissing cousins here, it seems to me. So you've touched on a number of different things, and there are a number of different issues that data aggregation addresses. Number one, there's the idea of harvesting data for purposes of selling more products to your existing customers. There's also um, the entire issue of aggregating, of harvesting data, aggregating data, and selling it to third parties so that they can use it to sell products to your clients. Then there's the idea of harvesting data, aggregating it data, aggregating that data, and selling it to third parties for completely different purposes. And um, you know, whether that is selling it to, um, I don't know, um, financial firms who might want to have some interest in making decisions about where to invest their money. I mean, you know, alternative data is a big deal. Um, I do think, you know, this is a first foray. And the idea of delving into this and evaluating it and then going further as they unpeel or unpeel the onion, you know, going further and deeper, I, I think is, is absolutely what will happen here. 
you know, the U.S. does not have a significant consumer data protection regime. And as a result, um, the question of ensuring that any particular individual's data is not only aggregated, but also appropriately anonymized, I think is really what we're talking about. But also, I mean, the, the CFPB's jurisdiction here is in some ways limited. Um, you know, you pointed out the gamification and data and engagement issue, and that is also touched on here. You know, they, they have a, they want to know what the products are. They want to know how the products are delivered. They want to know how, how, what the revenue streams are. They want to know whether um, third parties are used. They want to know how um, consumers engage with the products and how companies measure that engagement, which goes to the whole, um, you know, digital engagement practices that the SEC is measuring. Yep. They want to know, and this goes a little bit to what you were referring to, more than the data harvesting, what's the engagement? What is getting people to engage with your products? The data harvesting is really more along the lines of collection and management, and then they move into, are you evaluating whether consumers are actually eligible to utilize your products? And who should have access to your yeah. products? Are you permitting people to overspend? Are you, um, you know, and this goes, I mean, as a, as a securities enforcement lawyer, yeah. you, you know, you think about all of those people trading options yep. who are over their head. If you are selling to people products that perhaps they can't afford or, um, uh, um, letting them pay on time for products they can't afford. And what are the interest rates for those products? Are there interest rates? What are the, what's the level of usury on those interest rates? I mean, all of those kinds of things all come in. And then of course they ask about what's the level of consumer protection that you put into place and what kind of consumer protection. So it really covers the entire gamut in an effort to try You're on mute, Amy. Yes, yeah, sorry, I must have hit a nope, button. Nope, no worries. Um, it, you know, to really sort of sort, sort through the entire um, life of um, consumer engagement and company engagement with consumers um, of these um, tech products that reach into consumers' um, uh, wallets and pocketbooks. So, so. Amy, I'm going to, because I look at the view largely through that of a securities lawyer, much like you do, right? And I'm looking at this initiative a lot like what we saw over the summer with the SEC solar sweep, right? I, I look at the world as, well, what is the, the enforcement um, initiative here? And frankly, what, what are the avenues for enforcement, right? Um, and, you know, it seems to me like in, in the solar winds initiative, obviously the SEC has some level of enforcement uh, jurisdiction or else, you know, they, they wouldn't be issuing the request. They wouldn't have the authority to do so. I think we would all recognize that. But I think if you take a step back and look at what the SEC is doing in that solar wind sweep, 
they're, they're really trying to gather information about what companies are doing about their securities disclosure and controls procedures and how they're managing incidents coming in and how they are uh, processing it, not only from a, uh, from a disclosure standpoint, but also from a control standpoint, right? From a who is getting what information internally to make decisions about what disclosures need to be made or don't need to be made, right? Um, so there, there are multiple different agendas, I think, in, in that SolarWinds um, uh, enforcement suite. A lot like this, right? If, if we had to sit down and say, what are the potential avenues for enforcement? Um, we could no doubt name a few, which you obviously did. But to me, I think the bigger win here or the bigger get for the CFPB is information about what companies are doing and how they're going about it so that they can then feed into their regulatory process what additional consumer protection regulations they might want to put in place, or frankly, if they want to go talk to Congress about additional statutes that might need to be put in place in order to address X, X Y, or Z um, consumer behavior. So again, this is literally my thought when I was reading this over the past week. I don't know if you, you could say, Jerome, I think that's crazy. You know, I think this is all about enforcement, but I think there are a couple different agendas going on here. I think that's I think that's actually right. I, I also think, I mean, certainly they'll find some uh, bad actors. Uh, and I think that they will engender some change in an industry that has not been really regulated in this way. And uh, the combination of um, sending up a flare that says, hey, I know you don't think you're regulated, but we regulate you in this space. And even if you don't get this request, uh, you should be thinking about documenting the steps you take to protect consumers. You should be thinking about having policies, procedures, and practices that are actually documented. And you should be thinking about all of these issues from a compliance standpoint. And again, you know, as we always say in the securities area, if you don't have it written down somewhere, it didn't happen. So, I mean, again, thinking about these things from the standpoint of, yes, there's a regulator out there. And particularly as we deal with um, uh, consumers, all of this stuff needs to be documented. I mean, this is a lot of information um, and uh, not all of it will be relevant for every company. Um, and not every company will get this request. And I suspect that as these various tech companies are sort of sliced and diced and um, the CFPB wades into it a little bit more deeply as some of these third party intermediaries are identified, those folks will get a different type of request. Um, and again, you know, you know, some advice, I think, um, a lot of these companies will not really have experience um, responding to regulatory requests like this. You know, I, I have to say, um, and I know that it sounds as self-serving as possible, get help if you have never responded to a regulatory request like this. You know, there's a lot of oh, we talked to our lawyers about this. This is subject to attorney-client privilege. Well. Maybe, but know its limits. There's nothing that ticks off a regulator more than to be told that everything is privileged and for you to then discern that it's actually not. On the flip side of that though, FOIA is your friend. 
And I think that when you're not dealing with the SEC, um, people forget, I mean, the CFPB also has FOIA provisions and recent um, uh, Supreme Court um, uh, decisional authority has broadened the scope of what can be protected from a FOIA request. And so your trade secrets and business confidential information can be protected from discovery through a Freedom of Information Act request by seeking FOIA protection when you produce information that's responsive to a request, particularly one that is this far reaching and broad. And so it's things like that, that most folks won't think about, but people who do this all the time, yeah. these will be the first things we think of. So Amy, do we really need this boilerplate lawyer language at the back of our letter? The answer is- Yes, yes, you do. You <laughs> do, actually. If I actually a dime do. for every time I got asked that question, it seems really legalistic. The answer is yes, you need it. It's critically important. Yes, and so, I mean, but, but I have to say, I, I do think that this will inform regulatory process. Yes, there will be enforcement actions. And yes, it, it, it likely will change how some of this business will, done, will be done. And yes, this will mean we'll have to click through more nonsense that we will all ignore as we continue to engage online yeah. with all of these companies that we all engage with every day as we go about our life on the internet. Yes, indeed. Thank you. Awesome, awesome talk. Um, thanks for coming on. Uh, I, I, I learned a lot reading through this and you, you, you taught me even more. Hopefully everyone out there did as well. Uh, Always a pleasure. Why don't you take us from here? Thanks, Amy. That was a really interesting discussion. In keeping with the theme of the Biden administration's increased activity in the area of corporate enforcement, I wanted to say a few words about what's really the first major statement we've gotten on corporate enforcement from the Merrick Garland Justice Department. Last week at the ABA annual White Collar Conference, um, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco spoke about what the Biden administration Justice Department is going to do in the area of corporate enforcement. Her speech got a lot of attention. I think some of it justified, some of it maybe not so justified because it's sort of in some ways new wine in old bottles. But that in of itself is significant. The fact that we're going back to the Obama administration policies, not surprising. Um, the Trump administration didn't deviate from them nearly as much as it said it was going to at a rhetorical level but um, nevertheless significant. So let's just talk about what did Lisa Monaco say? First of all, she said that she identified three trends in corporate enforcement in recent years. The first is the increasing overlap between corporate white collar cases and national security cases. And this is something we've talked about on the show repeatedly. The second, she said, is the increasing use of data analytics in white collar and corporate investigations. And the third, she said, is that Criminals are, are taking advantage of emerging technological and financial industries. Now, going backwards, I think we can all agree that number three is nothing new. Criminals have always taken advantage of emerging technology and financial industries. That's what criminals do. The second one, data analytics. I'm not sure how new this is either. Um, data analytics has been a part of white collar enforcement since the dawn of time. Maybe it was people, you know, overstating the volume of wool that they were selling in medieval England or something like that, but that was data. So I'm not sure if that's uh, particularly significant. The national security one is quite interesting though. And I think what we're seeing is a lot, um, 
especially in the cyber area, with the proliferation of technology, the move uh, shift in doing business through virtually, that has obviously opened businesses up to all sorts of hacking attacks, ransomware attacks. A lot of these are driven by foreign intelligence services. And I think that's why we're seeing this connection. I think it really behooves all of us as white collar lawyers to, I'm not a tech person by any means, but at least to understand the issues here and understand what's going on. Because a lot of times these are the same old schemes, extortion, fraud, stealing of confidential information done by new technological means. And to understand them, you need to have sort of the basic white collar understanding of schemes, but you also need to understand how they're doing it. So I thought that was um, an interesting remark. There were several other points though in her um, talk that were, uh, that were interesting. Um, and I think she made four main points about where the department is going. The first is she talked about the role of individual accountability. And she stated quite clearly that to be eligible for any cooperation credit, companies must provide the department with all non-privileged information, generous of her to not ask for privileged information, about individuals involved in or responsible for the misconduct at issue. And she said, to be clear, a company must identify all individuals involved in the misconduct regardless of their position, status, or seniority. This, of course, is a reversion to the 2015 Yates memo and a backing off of Rod Rosenstein's backing off of the Yates memo in 2018, in which he said, no, no, you don't have to provide information on all the individuals, only those who are substantially involved in the misconduct. Now, what happened with that, of course, is that companies decided themselves, decided who's substantially involved and who's not, and surprise, surprise, all of those at the highest echelons of the company, anyone they didn't want to turn in, was not substantially involved, and therefore they were in compliance with Department of Justice policy by not providing any information, um, any information on them. She said, we're now going back to individual, looking at individuals. Now, I think this is actually easier said than done. We've seen this before, again, with the Yates memo. Now, it was only a year before the 2016 election, so it didn't have all that time, to, that much time to be implemented. But I think anytime you focus on individuals, it's obviously going to make companies less likely to come in and self-disclose because the people who have to make the decision about self-disclosure are the ones who could be implicated by the self-disclosure, depending on the circumstances, of course. We all know that much as DOJ likes to talk about its proactive approach to these investigations, a lot of these cases are made by corporate self, come out of corporate self-disclosures. So if you do something to deter that, you're not going to get as many disclosures, so we'll have to see how this plays out. I am skeptical that it's going to be much different than what we saw in round one in its first iteration, 1.0 in the Yates memo. Secondly, she said that we're going to have a surge, we're going to surge resources um, to the department's prosecutors, and they're going to put in a new squad of FBI agents in the department's criminal fraud section um, in order to facilitate cooperation between prosecutors and agents. Again, I'm not really sure what that means. Um, you know, I was a prosecutor. We work with FBI agents every day. They didn't need to be embedded in our U.S. attorney's office. She didn't really flesh out what this means. Maybe they're going to hire more agents to do white collar prosecutions. That would be significant, but that's not really what she was saying. It was more about embedding them with the fraud section. So hard to say what that means. Um, something else she said that I do think is, um, is significant, not something we've seen before, is that when the department decides on how to settle with the company, it is now going to take into account all prior misconduct, not just relevant 
prior misconduct. And she gave examples, for example, company comes in with an FCPA violation. Well, if they had a tax violation several years ago or an antitrust violation, or environmental violation, we're going to be looking at that as well in order to determine what kind of settlement she sh we should have. And that, it makes sense, I think, if applied in a reasonable way. If the prior misconduct um, results from the same compliance failures as the current misconduct, then obviously there is a pattern and you've got more of a systemic problem. If they're completely unrelated, if you've got an environmental um, in, in you know, yes. Brazil and a tax violation in the US here, query, and they're several years apart, overseen by different parts of the corporation, query whether or not it really makes sense to consider them as part of the same case. But what this does mean in practical terms for all of us representing companies in these investigations, we're gonna have to do a much deeper dive and a much more of a searching look back into the company's history with DOJ, with SEC, with other regulatory agencies um, when we go in to present to the regulators because they're going to be expecting to hear about that. And we're gonna have to explain if it is in fact the case why the prior misconduct is not relevant to the current case. So I do think that is something that is uh, important and will change the way we all practice. Um, the fourth thing she said was that about monitorships. Um, she said, she is a direct blow at the Benchkowski memorandum, which said, oh, we don't really need monitors. We're only going to use monitors when they're, you know, the, you know, when there's no other option available, we really have to have a monitor. And it was sort of a typical, if I may, Republican approach, you know, less government oversight of corporations is generally better. Um, she was quite explicit on this. And she said, to the extent that prior Justice Department guidance suggested that monitorships are disfavored or are the exception, I am rescinding that guidance. So that's, uh, don't take company, you're not going to get a monitor, monitor. I don't know how much this actually, you know, affected things in practice. There were, of course, monitorships during the Trump administration. There were cases that were resolved without monitorships before. Maybe at the margins it did. Monitorships are something that a company often seeks because if you get a monitor, that can often reduce the penalty in other ways. So I think this will continue to be um, part of the horse trading that goes into these settlements. But, you know, there's not going to be a memorandum you can cite there saying, you know, oh, don't fix a monitor, the, the Justice Department's official policy is against monitorships. What I think all of this means collectively is that the Biden administration, true to its promises, is going to focus much more on corporate crime than did the Trump administration. This was expected, and we're now starting to see um, teeth in that, how it's going to play out. And as I mentioned, I think the most innovative, interesting, significant part of it is the talk about the, you know, is what she had to say about all prior misconduct. Um, and I think that will put an additional burden on, um, on corporate investigations. Sorry to say to our clients, but you know, that is, that is the reality. So with that, I think um, back to you, Jerome. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Tom. I mean, I guess hearing you talk about those four points, it sounds to me, like while it's largely it's largely reversion back to the Yates memo on the individual culpability question, and there's a, a new wrinkle on the prior misconduct. It largely seems like the lesson here is a lesson that's always existed, which is um, the, the, the when you are before the Department of Justice in any kind of investigation, the need to engage with the you know the, the fraud section lawyers or the assistant United States attorney in 
dialoguing on some of these key issues, right? Drawing the lines, working to set up agreements or arrangements on, well, who, who do you actually want to hear about misconduct on, right? We're happy to come in and talk to you about whatever, but, but you also don't want to know about all 5,000 employees who might've got an email here or there, right? I remember talking with a, with a, with a, 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 a section chief um, for white collar and securities um, or securities and commodities um, actually in one of the U.S. attorney's offices. And we had this very same discussion. And I said, you, you mean, all is all. And certainly you don't know, don't want all. And this, this chief responded to me, yes, Jerome. And that's why you engage with us. You engage with us and, we, and we, we, can, we can work together in figuring out where those lines are. So there certainly is, I don't know that this changes anything. It, it's something that's always happened, right? The best way to make sure that you get cooperation credit is making sure there are no surprises at the end when you say, what is our cooperation credit? And the best way to arrange for that is by having a, as good of a relationship as you can with the government during the investigation, but also by dialoguing with them, right? And, and being transparent about where you drew lines. And if they think you draw, want, you want to draw the line one level deeper, you engage with them on that while maybe not acceding to every request. But as long as there are no surprises, I, I think, you know, this is largely um, old hat with the exception of maybe dealing with this prior misconduct, which I think also is largely you know, can, can be managed to a large extent by speaking with the prosecutor during the investigation to make sure they understand what is or what isn't uh, misconduct that should be counted. That's, well, that's exactly right. I mean, it leaves them with a lot of discretion, which they've always had. And the key to managing that discretion is a productive dialogue in which you have credibility um, on your side because you've disclosed and you document everything that you're saying. I think one difference is that it's not just disclosure about prior misconduct, it's they have information. There was a prior tax case maybe done by the tax division. That it gives them a little more leverage because they can now throw that into the mix with the settlement and so, and try to increase the penalty there. But it, the other thing, the other big takeaway lesson from this is what we always say. I always, I always tell clients, look, you have to know what DOJ is saying. You got to follow the latest cases. You got to follow their statements, of course. But don't focus too much on that because what's really going to help you is just regardless of what they say, regardless of who settled for what kind of violation, what's really going to help you is good day-to-day -day fundamental compliance practices. And that exists independent of any statement or who's in the who's in the White House. Just good, you know, feedback loops with your with your employees compliance training on a regular basis, policies, good tone at the top. If you do that, you're gonna protect yourself against all kinds of violations throughout the world. And that will always put you in, uh, put you in a good position. And if you prevent the violations in the first, first place because you have good compliance programs, you're not gonna to have to worry about the dialogue with DOJ on the back end. So there's no substitute for just good fundamentals like so many things in life. All right, thanks Tom and Amy, thank you. Great talk today. Great talk, everyone. This was this was awesome. Thanks, Amy. Come back soon. Thank you. All right. Take care, everyone. With that, gathering crowds is taking us away.